This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 7 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Charlie. How you doing? Horrible. My wife just slept with my partner. Oh, that's terrible, Charlie. You know, I had a pretty bad weekend, too. I went swimming in some muddy waters, and there were some, there were some gators, and I just I couldn't see them. You always have to be aware of gators, Andrew. You never can see them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, welcome to Detect This. As always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekcreator.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. We are back, Charlie. We are. Sorry, everyone. Our lives have gotten crazy at the most unexpected and least convenient time. Or at least yes. I can, at least I'll speak for myself and say that is what happened with me. How about you, Andrew? Yeah, this new job, it's taken up uh, around 80 hours a week of my life. I don't have weekends. I have nothing but work. It's it's very, very stressful, Yeah, as I imagine it's going to be for the rest of the uh, semester. Um, it's definitely been a challenge. I'm making it through, but as a result, I have less time to uh, focus on TV and True Detective as I would prefer. So hopefully that'll change uh, over the course of the next couple months, but... For the time being, my life is uh, pretty crazy, as I, I know yours is too, Charlie. Yeah, it's not so much crazy in terms of, like, what's coming up ahead, but more just sporadically, uh, like, it just gets crazy in the moment. And uh, one of my good friends, one of my best friends in Boston, has uh, just moved to New York City, so she had a goodbye party. Um, I've had friends who I haven't seen in a while come up. I've had school i've just started uh you know writing for edge boston and movie mezzanine so i've had screenings last week i had three and that then three reviews to write i've had doctor's appointments i'm trying to go to south by southwest i'm juggling all this and i'm 23 years old so of course i don't know how to properly balance and prioritize as effectively as some people so i'm working on it but i i apologize for the fact that I've been a little sloppy in terms of in terms of getting this podcast up at the appropriate time because it's not that I'm not committed or I don't love doing it because I love doing this show with you, Andrew. It's just sometimes my priorities get a little screwed up. All right. Well, let's go ahead and, and dive into the show. Uh, before we get started, I want to induct a few more honorary members onto the Detect This team. All you have to do to become an honorary member is to leave us a positive iTunes review. I'm going to go through these real quick, Charlie. Uh, first, Colin Allgood says... Fantastic podcast that feels like working on a case. It's a lot like listening in on a meeting with actual detectives, pulling evidence, and trying to fit pieces together. Whereas Cole and Hart are trying to solve a murder case, we're trying to solve the show altogether. Great points are made all around, and oftentimes I wish I was sitting in on the recording to pick out things that I noticed were missed, or to applaud the hosts as well as guests via voicemails and emails for picking up things I overlooked. Keep up the good work, guys, and don't worry, 7 is so rad you can mention it any time you'd like. Alright, thanks a lot, Colin. Yeah, thanks, man. And I'm sure Charlie's going to keep mentioning Seven, just so for those of you playing the Detect This drinking game at home, you can uh, you can have your drink. I feel like we should start playing it 
uh, while we record live, Andrew. <laughs> yes, that's just what the show needs, Charlie, is more more booze. <laughs> yeah, and then by the end of it, we won't even know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably, we, we, we might actually make more sense. <laughs> that, uh, that's true, that's true. <laughs> all right, Miss Mitten says, good job with the reviews, guys. And Captain Lou says, I tried all the True Detective podcasts, and this is the best one. Neffet says, very good host for an awesome show. Bilbo Baggins says, Detect This is the best podcast for True Detective. All others just gloss over the show, a simple opinion, and then next topic. This podcast goes into the depth of the show, fleshes out new theories, and brings to light new information. If you want a quality True Detective podcast, this is the one. All others are a waste of your time. I wouldn't go that far, Bilbo Baggins, okay? You could be a little nicer to some of those other True Detective podcasts. <laughs> They're trying to. They are, but it's very nice to us. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, hey, I appreciate the compliment. I yeah, appreciate the compliment. I do too. But I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like, uh, but yeah, dude, it's Bilbo Baggins. I mean, Bilbo Baggins <laughs> is our one of our biggest fans, Andrew. I'm quite Whoa. honored. <laughs> Whoa. That's pretty crazy. Stephen Ale says the two hosts are amiable, enthusiastic, thoughtful, and occasionally insightful. More heart than coal. They clearly enjoy each other's banter, well-produced, good sound quality, comfortably paced, and nicely structured with good observations and nice references to their broad TVography. Thanks, Stephen Ale. I, I don't know what to make of the fact that you said we're more heart than coal. Uh, was, that a, was that like a pun? You're saying we have a lot of heart, or were you actually saying we like to abuse women? I, I'm not sure, but uh, thanks, I guess. I try not to abuse women. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it happens occasionally. No, I'm totally kidding. Um, no. Uh, yes. Thank you so much. Um, if you knew me in real life, maybe you would change your mind. But <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, if you meant it as a compliment, we will take it. We will I don't think it. we get laid nearly as much as uh, Marty does. Or I'll speak for myself, <laughs> at least with women. So. <laughs> 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 yeah, as a gay man, you probably might have a little problem with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chim Duda Chim says, other casts may be backed by some type of network, but they're not nearly as informative or in-depth. Hey, we're backed by a network too, okay? Film Geek Radio. Go check out our other shows. Okay, that's just a side tangent. I wonder whose network that could be, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a side tangent. Go check out Film Geek Radio's other shows. They're all good, too. Uh, these guys are exactly what I was looking for. They discuss the episodes like a normal group of friends would. Their thoughts on each episode helped me realize things that I didn't originally realize while watching the show. Thank you, guys. Keep it up, and let us know what you're doing next. I'm excited to go through it with you. Thanks a lot, Chim Duda Chim. Yes, thank you, and hopefully we will get this episode out at a normal, uh, at the appropriate time this week, so people can actually uh, follow it through with us for once this week, and hopefully till the end of the show. Yes. Also, I didn't mention it last week. I kind of cut it out of the show because we were we've been so stressful, Charlie. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do this. Uh, Chim to Chim says he, he or she wants to know what we're doing next after True Detective. We've talked about it a little bit. We would like to do a podcast on either Turn, the new show on AMC, or Fargo, which is coming out on FX. It's going to be another crime show. Uh, we're still debating which one of those to do, and now, the more I get into this new job, and Charlie, it seems like you're pretty stressful too, I'm not sure we're going to have time to do another podcast right after True Detective. We, we will have to wait and see. If you have a preference for either of those shows and, and what you'd like us to cover, write it and let us know. As of now, though, I'm going to say it's it's tentative yeah. whether or not we'll be able to do it. We might need a break, unfortunately, and that makes me sad because I love doing this podcast, but, like, 
maybe more towards the end of the spring or the summer because I will have graduated from college, finally, and Andrew, I assume he'll be on summer vacation. At some point, yeah, yeah. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Charlie, you and I, we've done a couple other podcasts. We discussed the final season of Dexter. We did a show on the third season of Homeland. Uh, it might be time for just a couple months break because as our lives get busy. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and, and that does make me sad because I do love doing this show. It's just I don't want to let people down by consistently being late, and I felt bad enough with that with this show, and I don't want to repeat that. We're not just doing this because we're busy. We don't want to let our fans down. Right, Andrew? Right, right. We don't want to put out a show that's not up to the best quality because our lives are so hectic. We want to make sure if we're going to take the time to do it that we're firing on on all cylinders. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I assume, Charlie, that we'll probably be back for season two of True Detective next year, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Hopefully we'll do something before that, uh, possibly this summer, definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah, as for the spring, it's it's looking more and more doubtful. But anyway, that, that's the situation in terms of what we're thinking about doing next. Uh, we appreciate all your support, and we're glad to bring you all on as honorary members of the of the detectivist team and after this week's episode charlie as as i alluded to in our little opening i think that it's clear what we need next on the team we need a team of gator hunters because <laughs> sometimes you're swimming in muddy water and there's gators under the surface and you know what the problem is charlie what you can't see them no <laughs> that's can, the problem yeah. <laughs> they, they camouflage into the mud <laughs> yes so we need some prof- some uh, professional gator hunters so we hope that you'll all be able to help us out with that welcome to the detect this team all right let's discuss this week's episode the episode is titled haunted houses and like every episode of true detective it was written by nick pizzolato and directed by carrie fukunaga why don't you go ahead and give our listeners a quick recap of what happened this episode charlie all righty cole keeps investigating the missing persons cases and begins to suspect tuttle is somehow involved his superiors don't like him bothering people though so he quits the police force Hart cheats on Maggie with the underage prostitute he met in 1995. She has sex with Cole in order to motivate herself to divorce him, which dissolves the two detectives' friendship. In 2012, Hart stops the interview and refuses to entertain the notion that Russ is a killer, and he and Cole decide to get a drink and catch up after 10 years of not speaking to each other. All right. Well, before we really dive into things, I need to introduce a very special guest. She is a member of the Television Critics Association and a writer for RealVixen.com. You can also hear her discuss Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with me, William Bibiani, and Rod Morrow on the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast on Film Geek Radio. Gwen Reyes, are you ready to detect this? Oh, yes. Let's do it. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Gwen. I'm glad to have you on. I know you're a big fan of True Detective. Huge fan. Let me just start out by getting your overall thoughts on the show so far, and then your specific thoughts on this week's episode. Okay. Um, well, this show is a very fascinating thing. So I thought I kind of wasn't super on board with the first three episodes. I watched them all kind of back to back and, and I thought it was kind of a rambly, slow build of a show, but it has completely surprised me and, and kept you know, like, I'm just completely enwrapped with it. And I think it's a really great spin on the detective story, things that I think that we're all talking about. And I just, I've just obsessed. Like, I just love Heart and Cole so much and all the stuff that comes out of Cole's mouth. I'm just like, you are the most amazing, weird, ridiculous human being ever. (laughs) (laughs) I I have to ask you, Gwyn, I know you write a lot about uh, gender and sex Mm -hmm. in film and and movies. 
were you happy to see a little bit more of Matthew McConaughey? Oh, always. Yes, I was. <laughs> I, I appreciated the butt shot that we got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think everyone appreciated that. I did. <laughs> we didn't get enough of it in Dallas Buyers Club, clearly. So, well, so. <laughs> we didn't. And I don't think I would want to see Math- that Matthew McConaughey, that skinny one, naked. So I was happy to see him kind of back to being his sinewy very sexy texas self yeah he also started (laughs) saying man a lot the past couple episodes and i'm just like all right that's the matthew mcconaughey i know and love (laughs) (laughs) luckily he hasn't pulled out any fried chicken yet then i get a little scared yeah uh... (laughs) nope i'm leaving that's episode eight guys is he turns into killer joe (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yeah if there's a cameo by uh, gina gershon we know we're in trouble so (laughs) (laughs) so overall were you a big uh fan of this episode Gwen? I really loved this episode. I um, I thought the pacing was really, really good. I especially loved the heartbreaking. Like now we're really starting to delve more into these characters and watching the the, the breakup between Hart and Cole, and that the fact of it is that Maggie came in between knowing that she was going to sabotage her husband and not caring at all that how that was going to affect Cole was was really like the most incredible kind of writing I've seen. And I think Nick really understands how to write women. Like he does he's got such diverse characters. He's got Maggie and then he's got this new prostitute and he's got all of these just really rich characters that you're like, wow, these are so multifaceted and so incredible people. And um, I've been wondering the whole time. I, I love the, that we've seen the last few episodes is the com- the like distrustworthiness of our narrator. Like you hear the words that are coming out of their mouth as they're talking to the police detectives in 2012. And then you're actually seeing what they really did. And I love that this episode went back to that using that same trait that it did a couple episodes ago where we are seeing Maggie tell the story or seeing her say, oh, you know, I don't know why, why I went wrong. And then you actually see what she did. I, I'm really loving that as like a plot device. Yeah. And we actually got a couple emails about the gender politics of the show. So we're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, Charlie, what did you think of this episode? I agree with you, Gwen. I really enjoyed this episode. I don't think it's quite as strong as the past two, but I think it's I, I kind of agree with you where as much as I liked episodes one through three, it was a bit of a slow burn and it took me a little while to get really invested in the lives of these characters. But I think that this episode is probably my third favorite of the series so far, just a little bit behind episodes four and five. I thought that a lot of people uh, have discussed how this is kind of a bridge episode. It never felt like a transitional episode where I was fully aware of it being a transitional episode, even though it was very talky compared to the past two episodes and it was uh, not as action-packed. I was pretty much riveted by several of the, uh, almost every single scene in this episode. And there were lines of dialogue that where I watched it with a friend last night and we kind of looked at each other after a scene was over and went, oh, my God, like, mm-hmm. I can't believe that happened or I can't believe that character said what they just said or it, it, it was incredibly disturbing television. And it very, as the AB Club review stated from last night, it was it's very ugly television, especially this episode uh, from last night. But there's a kind of beauty in the ugliness and the human quality to it that makes it very engrossing. The one thing that I had a problem with is as much as I loved what they did with Michelle Monaghan's character, I wasn't a big fan of the prostitute that Hart meets up with. I'm pretty sure that it's obviously supposed to get us annoyed that Hart is looking at her like a sexual object and having another affair, but she didn't feel entirely real to me. 
there were scenes where she's just like, you're a great man. Anyone can see that. And I'm like, does this woman have functioning eyeballs or uh, <laughs> <laughs> like like it just felt a little too contrived for me. And the but I did find it to be interesting that instead of Cole consist or instead of Marty consistently dominating her, she was kind of dominating him and wanting him to dominate her in some weird ways. It's not like he says I want to fuck you in the ass. She calls him up and kind of persuades him to do that, which I found to be really interesting because, you know, I can't think of a female character ever saying that on television, you know, and not to mention like dialogue, that graphic or that act I haven't seen on television ever, like, or at least in a while. So like, yeah, I found it to be really interesting. I think that that stuff felt a little contrived, but in order to get where we are now, it was, I let it fly and I thought, and I bought it for basically all of the stuff that plays out with Maggie and that I found to be really heartbreaking like you did. So I want to talk about that prostitute and and that character in a little bit, Charlie. Um, All I'll say about this week's episode is that I agree with you both. I I really liked it. I think it's interesting. You say you didn't think it was a transitional episode, Charlie. I definitely felt like it was a transitional episode. Oh, I felt like it was a transitional episode, but I wasn't fully like it did. I wasn't thinking that all the way through. It wasn't until the episode was over where I was like, that was a transitional episode. If that makes any sense. Uh, It wasn't really until that moment where you see them decide to go get a cup of coffee, you know, to go get a beer that you realize, Oh, this is a turning point. Yeah, and that's the last scene of the episode, I believe. Yes, it is. Well, what's interesting to me is that I definitely felt like it was a transitional episode, and we got a lot of listener messages on Twitter, Charlie, after the episode aired, and people were kind of saying, like, oh my god, that was so intense. And I was thinking about it, Charlie, and I realized, okay, there were no major shootouts in this episode. There were no huge twists. This isn't exactly what I would call an intense mm-hmm. storyline, this episode. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of relationship drama. It's a lot of soapy, you know, people betraying each other and having sex with people behind each other's backs. And yet the mood of the show is so consistent and so oppressive. It feels very, very intense, even though really there's there's nothing that... I guess, out of the ordinary for television in terms of the events on display here. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure we've seen just about every single one of these scenes from this episode done before in a different show, but it was executed so well that it made me incredibly, like, my palms are sweating throughout it, and I was just completely wrapped up in everything that was going on. But I agree with you, if it was done poorly, I don't think we would have bought it, and we would have been making comparisons to other shows that did it better and uh it could have felt incredibly contrived because everything from the we're having sex with other people to get back at people who've hurt us that we love or you know all the interrogation scenes with cole and the little girl and figuring out who the suspects are before a suspect breaks down screaming and crying we've seen all uh, you know the suspension we've seen this all before but the acting and the writing and the way that Kerry uh, Fukunaga shoots it and uh, directs it is all first rate. And I think a scene that's really that kind of like encapsulates like the I wouldn't use the word intense. I would just say tense because that's the the atmosphere and the energy of that show of this episode just felt very oppressive is the scene where Cole is um, talking to the, the Marsh Medea or the was it Marsh Medea? The one that he says, you might as well, you, you know, prison's not kind to people who kill children. And you, if you get a chance, you might as well kill yourself. Like, that was such a shock. Yeah. 
shocking moment because the way he said it was just it was dripping with sensuality but also like this disgusting darkness that he just was like putting out that he was being very even-handed but also just showing how much he despises her yeah well it totally makes sense for that character though because of how he lost his his own daughter he has a very personal connection to cases involving dead children or or missing children and even though a couple episodes charlie uh you know you and i talked about how he will try to justify the death of his daughter to himself in certain ways like he'll make comments like oh i spared her the sin of having me as a father or however he phrased it it's obvious that that's really just a front and he really really connects with uh, cases involving children, which is why he is so obsessed to a certain degree with everything involving Tuttle and these dead women and children. It, it's because it involves children that he's so obsessed with it. Yeah, it was also the turning point for me when all the characters are saying, you know, Rust is, he's kind of out of control. He's, you know, acting funny. I don't think if we got that scene, we would I wouldn't have believed everybody else, especially based on everything that Marty's doing. But that was the turning point where I was like, yeah, I can see why people are starting to get concerns. That's a terrible thing to say to someone. Like, it's just absolutely horrible. Uh it, it it was shocking yeah. to me because, you know, I was talking to one friend who was like, I love the show, but they're almost like making Marty the most despicable person for the audience and making Russ the most admirable, like awesome protagonist for the audience. And he's like, and I feel like they're kind of not doing that even handed. They're not like divvying up the good and bad personality traits evenly. And then this episode came along and I was like, uh, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> uh, Russ can do some very terrible things and say some horrible things to people. And then on the reverse of that, then you have the scene where Marty beats up the two kids that had sex with his daughter. And then he's like, you know, so bully and tough about it. And then he goes to his car and vomits. Yeah. And I thought that was another very telling role of just showing the gray right. of these characters and, and how they put, present this one thing, but then they can twist and turn at any moment. Right. Both of these characters have, I think, who they want to be or how they view themselves and yet occasionally they will slip and, and mm-hmm. they can't always live up to that image of themselves. And I think that's really, really interesting. Uh, Gwen, let's talk about this this prostitute character, Beth, who shows up. This is a character played by actress Lily Simmons, who Cinemax viewers may know from uh, the show Banshee, where she plays another very sexual character uh, on that show. I was surprised to see her in this and I, I thought that they kind of hinted at this, and I, it wasn't confirmed to me until I was doing some reading about the episode later. But apparently this character, Beth, she is the underage prostitute yes. that Marty met out in the bayou yep. in, in, in the, the trailer park there back in 1995. Yeah, I missed that the first time I watched this episode. It didn't really click with me until I read reviews and went back and watched it. I just wish they made her character a little more... Like, I I get what they're trying to do with her, but I just didn't buy her as a character. It just felt like they were trying to use her as a plot device to get Maggie to split up with him. Well, and and I felt like it was also so obvious, too. Like, the moment that he walked into T-Mobile and she shows up, I'm like, oh, he's going to have sex with her. You know? Yeah. 
and that's something that's sad because in this whole show, I feel like we have we don't have a lot of moments like that we can predict with certainty what is going to happen. And that one, I was like, yeah, that's the easy Hollywood trick right there. Yeah. Also, side note about T-Mobile real quick. That was the first time I ever noticed product placement in this show. And it kind of took me out of the moment. I know that's not fair, but like, I feel like this show has done like such a great job with not including any product placement. And by God, I'm not saying that's bad if you include one or two, but I so noticed the T-Mobile store that I half expected, like, I don't know, Catherine Zeta-Jones to be like sitting on a stool in the corner, just saying like, T-Mobile, get more minutes or something like that. <laughs> that I mean, it's just a small side note, but yeah. Well, I think that this character is, is is interesting, even though, yes, Gwen, you're right. We totally could have predicted that as soon as he walks into the store and sees her. It, it just get back, it, it gets back to that question that the show brought up last week of do people change? And the conclusion that last week's episode seemed to have was no, they, they really don't change. So, yes, Hart is going to cheat again at, at some point. What was interesting about the fact that she was that underage prostitute that he met before, though, is that he was so concerned about her back then. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want her to be in that situation. He didn't want her to be selling her body, and, and he thought it was wrong. And didn't he give her money? Wasn't that also, he? didn't he hand over money to her in the kitchen? Yeah, I think so. I think so, right. And then Cole made a joke about, oh, was that her tip or something? Yeah, that's. I think that's what happened. Right. But now that she's no longer underage, he has no problem viewing her as a sexual mm -hmm. object, even though he knows that she used to work as a prostitute. And th it's, it's that kind of hypocrisy, I think, that makes the character of Hart so interesting, even when he's very, very unlikable. Yeah, once again, I just wish that she could say something that wasn't, you're a good man, or I want to have sex with you. That's my only complaint. But I do, I like that, um, I think, Charlie, you brought this up, but I really did like that she was the one pursuing him. And he kind of seemed like, oh, it, I wouldn't say remorseful, but kind of trying to contain, po retain power in some way by pushing her off and not wanting to talk to her. And I liked that element that we do see a little bit of, um, of him re recognizing the fact that he did make a decision that now is going to affect his family. And you see him kind of, counteracting with that by the way that he treats Michelle or treats Maggie at home when he's like, I love you. And she's just like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. AKA fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, I find it interesting. You say you didn't really like her dialogue because I actually thought that that line, you're a good man. I thought that was key to that relationship. You know, Marty goes with her because she says you're a good man. Marty wants to be viewed by the women in his life as a good guy. He's, yep. he's he's let down his wife. He's let down his children. His daughter isn't really speaking to him. He's had to go beat up her, her the two guys that she was with. But here along comes this woman saying, no, you're the good guy. Again, it goes back to what we were just talking about, Gwen, about how these characters want to view themselves. M Marty wants to view himself as a good guy. That's why he goes with her, because to a certain extent, she can help him believe that. I certainly think it was key for his character to hear that. And that wasn't the line in particular that like made me mad. I just felt like it was a little too rushed. I know that they cut away from their scenes together. And so we don't know what they talked about. And they probably got kind of close. But I just felt like it was so... It was meant, it was more of a plot device in terms of getting Maggie to find out about, 
you know, the fact that he's cheating again so she can go have sex with Russ. But I did like, but once again, I liked what happened with Maggie afterwards, and I thought that actually felt much more natural. And I liked that after the scene where he has sex with her for the first time, um, it cuts to the scene of Cole interrogating the woman who he tells to go kill herself in prison. And Marty's just standing there with his arms crossed, really pissed off, going, God, haven't you ever heard of a fucking condom? And it just made me so angry, but in a good way, because I'm like, you're having sex with prostitutes left and right. And then you're going to, like, criticize this one woman who for not wearing, you know, like, it just, ugh. Well, I like what you're saying, Charlie, and I like this whole line of thought about why people have the relationships that they have. Because the the cool thing about True Detective is that it is tying their decision to to cheat into who they are as people and what they want and kind of their fantasy lives that they are trying to obtain. And we see that with Marty and Beth, and we also see that with uh, Maggie and Rust. When, you know, the defining character of Marty is he's a hypocrite, but the defining characteristic of Rust is that no matter how depressing he is, he has integrity and he's responsible. And that is why Maggie is drawn to him, because he at least is consistent. And I like how the show is connecting these relationships and making it clear that these characters aren't just cheating on each other because they are unhappy or they want to have a little fun on the side. They're cheating because the person they are sleeping with makes them feel a certain way about themselves or it's, it relates to something that they want to have in their lives. Definitely. And I do find it to be interesting that both women in both situations assess the situation sexually and take control because in any other show, it would probably be the other way around, and it would probably be a lot more exploitative, too. And I didn't get that vibe here at all. All right. Well, uh, we're going to talk about more about the, uh, the Maggie-Rust relationship when we get into listener emails. Before we get onto that, though, I want to talk about everything with uh, Cole and his investigation and everything going, going on with him, because he's tracking down people. He's getting in people's business. He goes to visit Tuttle. And I thought it was interesting that this episode, they confirm Huddle died in 2010. And they kind of suggest that maybe Cole had something to do with it. So not only is Cole a suspect in the new murder of of this girl in 2012, these new detectives are also investigating whether or not he might be connected to Tuttle's death. Gwen, what did you think of his whole investigation and, and how this Door Lane case has really kind of grown and expanded? You know, I, I was excited because I've been reading um, some, like, perspective sort of ideas of who people think are the main killer and the Yellow King and stuff. And so I was actually kind of surprised that they killed Tuttle off because I was thinking he was going to be end up being the, the main serial killer or at least somehow tied to it. And I just really enjoy watching Cole investigate and kind of crumble at the same time, like it's almost too overwhelming for him to get what he needs. And so that that element is really kind of fun. I kind of wish we would spend a little bit more time. I wish we had like another another three episodes rather than just two episodes, because I'd like to see like maybe an, just an all episode of him just continuing to do the investigation part. Yeah, I, th- I find all of that stuff really, really compelling and just seeing how it's slowly starting to get to Cole. Charlie, what do you think of all that? 
I agree with you, Gwen. I thought that Tuttle was going to be, uh, he was definitely in like my top three of the main suspects that I thought could be the killer. And I do find it to be interesting that they revealed that he died. And correct me if I'm wrong, but did one of the cops mention that he had overdosed and that two days before Cole had broken into his house or someone had broken into his house and they think that it's Cole? Two days before his house had been broken into, and then also he had a couple of houses, and all of his houses had been broken into before he died. Yeah, and he's responsible for the Wellsprings uh, program, which, according to him, when Cole interrogates him, they couldn't sustain the funds, or it was something involving financial trouble, which I find to be interesting, and I wonder if that's a lie. You know, maybe he's not entirely innocent just because he died didn't mean that he's completely scot-free, but... I do find it to be interesting that all this stuff leads up to Tuttle and then he dies in 2010, which means that maybe he had an apprentice. They also hinted that maybe it's multiple people doing this. Maybe Tuttle gathered some sort of cults to enact what he wants to do. Uh, It's all up in the air at this point. And uh, I will admit the first time I watched this episode, I had to rewind uh, a scene with a friend because I was a little uh, confused on some details because it does move very fast. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I much prefer a show that throws a lot of information at you and says, we have faith in you to keep up with this. And we're not going to be condescending and treat you like uh, you don't understand this unless we break it down in characters that are saying, wait, what? What happened? And they repeat themselves. Like, there's some murder mysteries where they just... You know, they give you quick flashbacks and they use very broad dialogue or blunt dialogue to make it clear, like they're almost breaking the fourth wall. Here's what uh, here's where we are now, viewers. Like you might as well have someone with a little pointer stick off to the side. But um, yeah, I, I found it to be interesting. And I like the way that they go about Cole's interrogations in a fast paced way where, you know. I feel like a lot of murder mystery shows aren't as mature as this and don't... They don't give viewers enough credit. Yeah, exactly. Because there was the episode, there was the scene, and it might be the same one that you had to rewind, but the one where at the end of it, Woody Harrelson's like, all of that was just gibberish to me. Like, I had to rewind that scene five times because I was like, what am I missing? Like, words are not making sense to me. Yeah, well, there was also the scene in the beginning where he was talking about the guy with uh, Tuttle and... I don't know if it was just the volume quality on my TV or whatever, but the guy was speaking so quietly that I couldn't exactly hear what he was saying, and I had to go back with that one. Um, the Reverend, is that yes, the Yes, The Reverend. Yeah. And see, that one that one was interesting, because that was the thing that they found, that there was another Reverend that was working there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if it was the same one or what, but who had the child pornography. And yeah. then to hide it, they turned him to embezzling. And I couldn't figure out if that was supposed to be the guy that had the tent, no, that was uh, that was different. Okay. Yeah, I was a little confused on that too, actually, Gwen. Because I was like, but he was a janitor here, and now he's a tent revivalist, and I don't understand what's happening. Yeah, it did get a little complicated at times, but never in a way where I'm like, I'm so lost, I have no idea what's going on. And I find it to be interesting that once again, you know, they brought up child pornography. They they bring in a lot of uh, themes involving children into this show that I find to be really eerie in some ways because it's never the kids are never brought up in optimistic ways it's a lot about how we're kind of hurting our children in this culture and uh how children are hurt in a variety of ways everything from marty's kids to the child pornography that's mentioned to the death of russ's daughter i find that to be interesting and i feel like we might get a little deeper into that within the next two episodes getting back to what you were saying about how complicated the show could be at times I think the show does a fantastic job of making you believe 
that an investigation like this could take 17 years because there are just so many different pieces, so many potential suspects, so many moving parts that could somehow be involved or could be part of a cover-up. You really do start to realize, oh man, this is this is complicated. No wonder people think Cole is is crazy and just bothering people because there's so many things that you have to fit together in an investigation like this. I think this show does a great job of making you feel the long hours that go into working a case like this. Yeah, it. I mean, and it made it more realistic because cases do get complicated. I mean, if you look at the history of the Zodiac Killer and that went on for years and that was adapted into a great movie by David Fincher, I can also remember um, when I was on vacation as a kid and... I was just watching TV and then every channel was covering how they found they probably found John Benet Ramsey's killer. And I had never heard of it because when that was going on, I was a kid and my parents had to explain the whole thing. And I was just like, wait, how can this, you know, come up after like 17 years? And then I looked into it and I was just like, oh, my God, I can't even follow all this. So I feel like that's very true to life, that every crime is murky. It's never as clean cut as a majority of these crime shows or crime films uh, make them out to be. And it's interesting because we as an audience know that, of course, there's a killer still going because we have, you know, so many episodes left to, to watch. But in the world that they're living in, they've already caught their man. Like the police is like, we've got our guys. They're dead. We saved the kid. She, you know, what happens? And I love that they actually explore the, the little girl who was saved. Um, and then in 2002, and she's locked in a an asylum. I love that they explore the fact that she could never get over that. Because a lot of times in um, procedurals and detective shows, you don't think about the victims. Like they just are like, oh, we saved them, they're fine. And I like that they showed that, no, she's not going to be fine. Same with the prostitute, I think, too, is that they're not fine. That's a situation, and they're going to have to deal with that for the rest of their lives. And we, of course, know there's more, but the police officers or the, the detectives within there and the sergeants like, dude, this is a closed case. I don't know why you're even looking at anything anymore. Yeah, that was that scene with the little girl gave me the chills, too, because first of all, in terms of uh, child actors, that was a phenomenal performance. And it was also one of those scenes where she's talking so quietly and it gives you the chills. And then I had to turn up my volume on my TV. And then by the time she starts screaming, it got so loud in my apartment that I was just like, to, like hitting the down volume button. Start watching with uh, subtitles. That's how I watch it. <laughs> that's that's a good point. Sometimes I, I, I occasionally go back and turn on the captions for a particular scene if I can't understand it. But I feel like with cat with subtitles, as much as I like to do that, I feel like I end up reading the dialogue before they actually say it. And the whole tone and surprise of it kind of gets lost for me. But yeah, it's definitely uh, I'm sure that would be a def definitely an interesting experience. And this is also one of those shows where I'm thinking, I wonder if people who watch this show with captions or subtitles have been picking up on a bunch of little details that have completely gone over my head. So, yeah, mm -hmm. maybe because I watch I watch all the episodes with the subtitles on and it helps me to Hear, like those little moments I can pick out what they're saying and stuff. All right. Well, uh, before we move on to emails, my last question. Uh, the final shot in this episode is of Cole's broken taillight as he and Marty are getting, uh, they're, they're driving away to go have a drink and catch up. Are we supposed to infer that he just hasn't had his head, his taillight fixed in 10 years because mm -hmm. doesn't that get broken during the fight he has? Yeah. He throws Marty into it. Yeah. So he just hasn't fixed it in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's foreshadowing too, to say that that was a moment that was a very like 
memorable moment for him too. So maybe that's a totem or something that he has to let go of what happened with him and Marty. And I feel the same way about Marty grabbing his gun and preparing it for when they're going to go have their drink together. It's like neither of those men have let go of what happened to them. And they're so closely tied. And it goes, you know, back to last week's episode where they spent the whole time. They, they know the truth of what happened at the, at the shootout at the meth lab, but everybody else doesn't know. Yeah. It was also that it, I love how it takes, you think it's going to be okay when they're like, Oh, I'll buy you a drink. And then the tone of the scene totally shifts gears when he's like, actually, why don't you buy me a drink? And then he pulls out the gun and then it's the shop and the broken taillight, which I love that shot. And I also read it as metaphorical for like Rust as a person in terms of like how this case has been affecting him, how like it's a broken taillight because he's never stopped like doing research and trying to solve this case. Maybe that's a little more of a general broad metaphor or reading of that. No, I I think you're absolutely right, Charlie. Uh, what's interesting to me, though, is that I was thinking, okay, Cole is not a cop anymore. He hasn't been a cop for 10 years. How has he not gotten pulled over? How, <laughs> you know, how did, how did you have a broken taillight for 10 years and not pay some sort of fine? Maybe he only takes back streets. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. All right. Well, then let's move on to some feedback. Uh, firstly, we got some voicemails from Hannah. Here's what she had to say. In episode six, I had a thought come across my head, so hear it out. I think that Rust Cole wanted to be caught. That's why he showed up at those crime scenes. He wanted to be interrogated by those men. He wanted Marty Hart to be interrogated as well. I think that he wanted to find out what the police department knew, if there was any new information or not. And also, I think he wanted to get access to Marty Hart. He wanted to sit down and talk with him, maybe find out what the police knew or whatever. Another thing that crossed my mind is in the preview for episode seven, they show Marty watching something on the TV screen and him like freak out based on what he saw. I think he's going to see a video of his daughter um, being a victim of of these crimes. So I think that Rust Cole did have the motive behind getting caught like I think he knew he was going to be called in there because he was creepy and showing up in those photos so I think this has all been part of his plan to further his case okay so Gwen do you believe that Cole arranged everything just so he could reconnect with Marty I think so I think that he knew he needed Marty and I think that Marty would not have come to him willingly like if he just went up to his door and said I found this stuff I I can imagine that Cole would actually do something that orchestrated and that elaborate to kind of like brush out his old partner. I think that's a really, really good theory. Yeah, that's a really cool theory. Yeah. We, may not, we may not delve into it, but that's a really cool theory. I mean, Charlie, you and I talked last week about how we were pretty sure that Cole, I mean, we, we talked about how he went into the interview basically knowing that he was going to wind up a suspect. He That's why he was drinking, so everything he, he said would be inadmissible. And he basically just went into the interview to see what the cops had. Mm-hmm. I had totally not thought about, well, oh, hey, maybe all of this was a way to reconnect with Marty. I think that's a really, really interesting theory. Okay, so I have this theory about the King in Yellow and True Detective. I know that the writer of True Detective mentioned that he broke up the episodes into acts, meaning act one 
includes episode one, two, and three. Act two is four, five, and six, and act three is episodes seven and eight. Well, uh, The King in Yellow, the play, The Yellow King, supposedly, if you read this, the second act, you go crazy. So I'm wondering if in this coming episode, episode six, that there is going to be something that drives us, the viewers, crazy or drives Rust crazy. I don't really know how that will pan out, but considering the fact that the writer has intentionally linked the King in Yellow and True Detective together, and the fact that he mentioned the show being Axe makes me draw this connection. What do you think? What do you guys think about what Hannah has to say about the second act and that whole idea that, well, in The King in Yellow, the second act makes people crazy when you read it? Did, did you get any of that in episode six? Because this is supposed to be the end of act two. I Yeah, because I think we've seen a, we've seen a changing in, in uh, Russ that we hadn't seen before you know we've already referenced the 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 medea situation where he kind of switches the character and or switch you know turn starting to turn darker people starting to wonder if he is going nuts how he walks out of the precinct like all of those things i think that we're starting to see a maddening of our own main characters yeah even maggie's starting to lose it i mean oh yeah i mean it's clear that she used rust like she didn't just want to have sex to have sex. She wanted to, you, you know, she basically stated, even though she kept getting interrupted by Rust, that she couldn't have sex with a stranger. It would hurt him more. It would hurt Marty more if it was someone that he knew. And she basically outright stated that afterwards. And, you know, she's crying and upset there uh, when Rust is kicking her out. But then when he she tells it to Marty, she's so cold and so sadistic in the way that she presents it and it just seemed like maybe i don't even know maggie that well because that was just so like eerie i don't know i mean i think she's a fantastic character and i love michelle monaghan's performance in this episode in particular but that seemed like it 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 seems really cold-hearted like just and i can understand where it comes from but i i did not expect for maggie to do something like that especially even though you know We've talked about in the past, Andrew, could Maggie and Rust have something going on here? Maybe they had a thing together. And then last week we were like, no, probably not. Or that was episode four, I think, where uh, she said, you'd make a wonderful husband. And he walked out of the diner. Now we know that they have. And not to mention that sex scene was like, first of all, Matthew McConaughey and Michelle Monaghan are two very beautiful people. That was such a uh, well shot sex scene in the terms of that it was it was very erotic and yet at the same time it was very in your face and very vicious and almost kind of ugly i mean it wasn't yeah it was very ugly I, I didn't think it was erotic at all no no like i feel like it, it started off erotic in some ways and then it just got like and then it kind of like it makes you want to see that happen because you know it's coming and you're like oh no and then when it starts happening you're just like oh wow and they shot it from angles that were very unflattering on purpose, I believe. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're going to talk more about that in a, in a minute. But getting back to this whole idea of people going crazy, uh, Charlie, you mentioned uh, Eric Adams' review of this episode over at the AV Club. He talked a lot in that review about how, and, and we've talked about this on the, on the show, Charlie, about how you know the fans out there we've seen, just from fans of the podcast, 
people are looking for clues. People are trying to follow along with Cole and put the pieces together. They're looking for references. Oh, there's a yellow crown in the background here. Oh, there's an some antlers. If you look closely in the scene here, uh, we've gotten some emails from from listeners that pointed out, oh, well, and there's a photograph at Dora's house with her parents that is kind of sinister. So people are looking for clues. And the question I want to posit to you guys is, is that what is going to drive people crazy? Because I I have a theory now about how the show is, is going to end based on what listeners have brought up about how, you know, the second act of The Yellow King makes you go crazy and yada, yada, yada. I think that True Detective is going to end and we will not know who the killer is. I agree. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I that 100% agree on that. Yeah, I think that Cole, I think we might find out that Cole killed Tuttle because he couldn't find the proof. He couldn't put it all together. He needed someone to blame. So maybe he blamed Tuttle and, and killed Tuttle. But I think overall, we're going to find out that, you know what, there, there is no easy answer. I don't think they're going to catch the killer. And I think the, the obsessed fans of True Detective who are watching every episode, trying to piece it together and figure out, I think that in that respect, it is going to drive them crazy. Because like Rust, they're going to be pouring over every scene of the show. They might even rewatch the series several times. Uh, they might theorize about it, saying, well, oh, in this scene, if you notice this, it suggests that so-and-so is the killer. Oh, well, in this scene, no, it suggests that so-and-so is the killer. I think that, yeah, that's, that's what Nick Pizzolatto might ultimately be trying to do here, is drive the audience crazy along with uh, the characters by not having a definitive answer. We're getting to the point where there are so many characters where it doesn't even seem like it would be satisfying if, to know that, oh, of course this person's the killer. I mean, there's so many characters and they all basically have alibis at this point and we don't know them that well that if even if they do find the killer, which could work out fine, I'm sure, it's not going to be that, oh, I knew it, it was this guy the whole time. I mean, I feel like that's not the point of the show and I, I think that's a very good point that he is trying to make us, he, it, it kind of puts us in the character's perspectives of trying to figure out who the killer is. And then they, uh, by having them go crazy, we're also going crazy because we're watching it through their perspective. Not to bring up uh, David Fincher's Zodiac again, but that film covers similar themes where it's a three hour epic of basically these three lives that were ruined by the obsession of the Zodiac killer, which in real life was never found. And I feel like it's uh, the show starting to make certain parallels to that film in terms of the themes it's exploring that I find uh, uh, films like that where, or films and television shows where there is no easy answer and there is no obvious killer are much more eerie and haunting and thought provoking too, because sometimes uh, when you find out who the killer is, it can also um, nullify the impact of a show and uh, some of those themes that they were uh, talking about earlier or exploring earlier uh, may be nullified through that. And I feel like, the themes of the show will in some ways be stronger if they don't have an easy answer. I mean, a lot of the most chilling crimes to me are like the Black Dahlia, where it was the most notorious crime in California history. They never found who did that. They never found out who did the Zodiac murder. We still don't know exactly who murdered John Benet Ramsey, but we have, you know, hints. But that's more true to life as well. Not every case is wrapped up with a neat little bow. All right. Well, uh, we got an email from Tony 
she writes in and says, Who has scars? Isn't Cole covered in scars? Wow, looks like I'll have to go back and look at all those scenes with Matthew McConaughey's shirt off and press pause, just to cover the bases. <laughs> that is I love true. Her. See, that's I'm thinking it's I, I think if we do get a, if we do get a killer, I totally believe that it is going to be Cole. Oh, see, I don't think so at all. Maybe maybe a Tuttle. He's trying to like clean up all of his messes and stuff. I think it's more Cole than Marty. Yeah. Well, I don't think that it would be Tuttle now because I, unless Tuttle's out of it, I think he'll be a, he'll be like a red herring. It's clearly his teenage daughter. It, guys, I mean, she's dressing up in black. I bet she listens to Marilyn Manson CDs. <laughs> I was like, it's Maggie. <laughs> well, actually, uh, uh, speaking of, of of Audrey Hart's daughter, Tony also says, uh, looks like the daughter was abused in some way, but that's going by what I saw in the preview for next week's episode. But I'm sure something happened to her. I'm a girl, and it's true girls learn about sex faster because we develop faster than boys, but she seemed to know more earlier than what's normal. I'm sure no one talked to her about gangbangs or rape when she was a child, and that's the game she was playing with the Barbies. The pictures that she drew were very graphic. Maybe she's seen it on television, but no, it's not common for a normal teenage girl to have a threesome. Girls that age are usually really shy and timid and very body shy. They're not adventurous and confident. Gwen, as someone who writes a lot about... uh, femininity and sex, what Mm -hmm. did you think of that whole plot development involving Hart's daughter and her having a threesome. Is is that realistic at all? Because last week, Charlie and I talked about it, and we kind of came away feeling like, oh, well, she's just being a teenager. Yeah. See, and I I actually would agree, I would agree that I think that she, at the time of, that she is, she's 2002, Internet's readily available, they probably have a computer, so they probably could be looking at weird shit on the Internet, that I do believe that, that this character, that this girl would get herself in a situation like that. Just based on the time period, what she has to do, she's, you know, she's a smart enough girl to overhear what her dad's talking about. You know, kids hear these things and maybe those are situations or maybe she was something did traumatic happen to her. We don't know. Um, but I, I don't remember. And it's funny because I didn't even remember that she was playing, that she was doing like weird rough sex stories with her with her Barbie dolls. That's a very interesting thing because then maybe you can argue that it was always ingrained in her and she that that was just a natural progression for her. But I agree. I think it was just a teenager being a teenager in this highly sexualized and digital world that they're currently living in. Yeah, 2002 was a time where the world was really changing because I was uh, 2002, I was 11 and um, you know, 9-11 just happened. The internet was on the rise. MySpace would be big in a few years, like a year or two. Um, I remember that was a time where I remember thinking the world is in a safe place, as safe of a place as I thought it was. But that's just personal experience. But yeah, I do think that 2002 was when the world started to change in terms of our culture. But at the same time, I don't think that the show is trying to make a statement so much on that time period as much as it is on the characters. So I don't know if I want to go too deep into that because I feel like that might get misleading. But I, I do agree with a lot of the points that you state, Gwen. Yeah, I just think it'd be it would be more interesting if that storyline of that that plot development had happened in the nineteen ninety five statement. Like if she had been seventeen in nineteen ninety five rather than seventeen in two thousand and two, because I think that her her opportunity to see that kind of stuff readily available wouldn't have been 
there. So maybe her troublemaking would have been in a different route. But I think that the show is obviously trying to make messages about children and sexuality. And she's obviously a 17 year old child in, you know, investigating and exploring her sexuality and sensuality. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, Maggie finds out about Rust's, I mean, excuse me, Maggie finds out about Marty's uh, infidelity through a picture on his cell phone. So maybe it has something to do with that. Also, what an idiot. Can I just say what an idiot? <laughs> like you, you're, uh, your wife catches you once. And then you think that it's going to like be okay to just keep those pictures on your phone. And then when she finds it, you're just going to be like, oh, it's not my fault. Some crazy bitch sends me pictures. Well, delete them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the last thing uh, we, we should talk about is uh, an email we got from Bridget. Bridget writes in and says, I'd really appreci- appreciate it if you guys could have a serious conversation on the podcast about misogynistic responses from viewers towards Maggie. Her scene tonight with Rust was one that, even as I was watching, made me dread my usual post-episode visit to online message boards. Though generally, there are always a few angry woman haters lurking in threads, tonight was just a shitstorm of slut-shaming. Thread titles like Maggie versus Hussein versus Hitler and What Maggie Did is Unforgivable made me weep for the state of humanity. How is it possible that we live in 2014 and women are still often the only ones to be blamed for sexual misconduct? Amen to that. I I completely agree because I see a lot of parallels between Maggie and Skylar White, who was another female character that was completely obliterated by media and commenters and stuff for being a harpy and being a horrible person. And I saw as soon as I was watching that episode this morning, I was like, oh, God, we're having we're going to have Skylar White part two right now with this moment. But that scene, I just think. It was so powerful and so amazing. And the people who can't that can't see that what her heart was doing, how bad it was versus her taking charge of her sexuality and using it to then obliterate the feelings of her husband and to be like, I mean, that was like a scorched earth sort of thing. She was like, I don't care. This is going to hurt rust. I don't care. This is going to hurt my husband. I am done. And it it was, I have not seen something like that on television before. And I was really, really impressed with that. Yeah. She's basically like, I'm so hurt that I just need to, I will do whatever it takes to make the people who've hurt me feel the way that I do. And in some ways I bet that she used Russ because she doesn't know if she can trust him. I mean, you know, she doesn't know if he knew the entire time. And at the same time, I'm not sure if we know that he knows. Uh, I assume that we don't. I believe that, like, even I, as I think about it, like the moment that she went to the bar to try to find another guy, I think that was all a ruse so that she could find her way to Russ. Like, that she had pinpointed Russ because she knew that would hurt him the most. And that, I think, was the most manipulative and almost like Lady Macbethian sort of moment because she knew exactly what she was doing and that's really scary for i think a lot of male viewers and women viewers who think that there's like a you know a a difference in the sex i think that that's a very uncomfortable and scary thing to think of that that women can be that way and that it can take over in in this way that you don't really ever see you see either slutty women or you see uh, the Madonnas, you don't see that dichotomy of what actually causes that. Like she was bullied. She had been bullied for 17 years and that was the result of what happened. Like all those things that she did are really Marty's fault because of how he oh, treated yeah. her. Right, right. Absolutely. And I just want to point out that it all goes back to the conversation she had with Rust on the phone. Uh, and I, th- I think it was episode two or three where he basically implied that a lot of people are cowards 
and they do not have the courage and the ability to quit and break off relationships and things in their lives that they know are hurting them. And in that episode, he was kind of implying that that's what it was like with Maggie and her marriage, that she mm-hmm. knew she was that, that she had a bad marriage, but that she was a coward because even a bad marriage would be worse than being alone. And here we see that something must have stuck with her regarding that because she finally did whatever it took to, to, to get rid of, of Marty. She realized that, nope. I am going to do what it takes. I'm going to do whatever I need to psychologically be able to divorce my husband and, and get away from him. Um, so it's it's all connected. And I agree with you guys. I think it's pretty upsetting that there is there is a double standard out there and people cannot see how Maggie's actions relate to Marty and how they will be far more willing to rush to Marty's defense just because he's a man than mm-hmm. they are to rush to, uh, to to Maggie's defense. And I mean, maybe it's true that, yes, Maggie was intentionally trying to destroy relationships, whereas Marty was not. He was just doing it on the side, and he didn't really see how his actions were affecting the people around him. I think that actually makes what Maggie did far more fascinating and far more empowering. The fact that she's fully aware of the consequences of her actions. She understands the weight of an affair and sex in her body and and how she uses it. And she uses that to do what, what she needs to do. Yeah. And going back to the double standard thing real quick, it also reminded me not just of Skylar White, who I I agree with you, Gwen. It, I definitely got uh, a Skylar White vibe from uh, what Maggie did this episode. It reminded me of uh, season three, episode three of Breaking Bad, IFT, where everyone just went up in arms after Skylar did something in that show that made a lot of people mad. And really, we should have been like, good for you. But it also reminded me of how everyone rushes to Don Draper's side in Mad Men after, you know, Betty does something like uh, similar. And I remember it's not just men either. I've talked to women who hate Skylar White, who hate Betty. And it 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 just shocks me because I, I, you know, I'm just like, okay, so they have to be the, you know, the wife who takes care of the kids and stays in the kitchen all day or and if they don't, if they actually stand up for themselves and take control of a situation that they've been held hostage within for years, that's a bad thing. And that and the fact that women uh, I met several women and had several conversations with women about this and that they just don't care that, you know, it's OK for the adulterous man who uh, to do whatever he wants because we're following his story and we're in his perspective and it's his show. And the the, the wife just doesn't understand. She just doesn't get it. You know, we clearly get it because we are following this particular character. It's not the wife's show. Or that we think and I think this has a, little, a lot to do with it, too, is I think that we as television culture and just as a culture in Western culture is that we see, we view women as victims. Mm-hmm. And when that is broken, when those women are strong and those women stand up for themselves and they put themselves toe to toe with a man and they're a main character, it's not just like the bossy police chief or the, you know, the sassy judge. It's like, this is a character that we've seen this one way, victimized, victimized, victimized. Her husband's cheating on her. Her kids don't listen to her. She has nothing going for her. She married down. And now she's like, fuck it. I am 
hurt and mad. Not, she's not even hurt anymore. She's angry. Yeah. There's a lot of like just hatred there. People don't want to see that. And that's really interesting because I feel like these shows are holding up a mirror to women, especially women who are like, "Ugh, I don't, I would never do that. And it's like, well, of course you wouldn't do that. You're not, your husband's not philandering or whatever. But I think if you were in that situation, you might, and you'd want somebody to sympathize with you. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're in a relationship, you can do some really terrible things that you never thought possible if that person that you care about ends up hurting you. Because, and I think that people forget about that too. And I know it's, I know it's fictionalized. I know this is just a television show, but I think that, you know, the psychology for that character is very, uh, very on point. So. And we see that Maggie's still living with that. You know, 10 years later, she's still talking about, she goes in and is interrogated and she talks about how she has, she doesn't like to deal with difficult men anymore. Like that's behind her. And, Mm -hmm. but she's still holding on to that rage and that anger. Right. And I just want to point out that I, I I want to make it clear. We're not defending what Maggie did. I, 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 no, I mean, but we're empathizing with what she, right, right. Like she, she did a terrible thing in using rust for her own ends. And I, I think we can all agree that, that was not a very good good thing to do, but I think we all understand why she did it, and that's that's. But it makes the key. for good TV. Yeah, yeah, it is very good TV. Yeah, because the show does a great job of analyzing the these characters from all of their perspectives. It's not just we get Rust and Coles, and then Maggie comes in and decides to have sex with Rust, and is like, "Oops, I guess this is going to make things difficult." You know, like she, we know exactly where that character's coming from. If she was a less developed character and was just like oh my god, he's cheating again, let's have sex on the couch, and then it's just her domineering, and Rust is like, hell yeah, and you know, it just turns into this really playful form of sex. It could be considered very misogynistic and very stereotypical, but it's a show more about characters than the actual case, which is also another reason why I don't think we're going to find the killer, is the show's, and I like it for this, much more fascinated on what the case is doing to these people, and how it's affecting other aspects of their lives that you don't think can be connected with the case in some way, but subconsciously so. All right. Any final thoughts on Haunted Houses? Gwen? Oh, man, my final thought. Ugh, so much pressure. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sad. To, I'm honestly, I'm kind of sad to see Maggie go. I don't know if we're going to, I don't think we're going to see any more, t- spending more time with her in the next couple episodes, these last two. So I'm, I was really enjoying Michelle Monaghan's uh, development, but that's my, my biggest takeaway from that. And I'm also really curious to see if, uh, if Hart is going to be bringing that gun into the bar with him. Yeah. I'm not sure that Mag, uh, that Michelle Monaghan is gone for sure, because I remembered me and Andrew thought that she might be gone after she left Hart the first time, but maybe she'll come back in some interrogations. I don't know. I, I agree with you, though. I hope that she doesn't go away. I've always liked Michelle Monaghan. I've always thought that she's been a very underrated actress ever since Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Gone Baby Gone. And also the red dress she wore in the bar reminded me a lot of uh, how she looked in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and uh, just how gorgeous of an actress she is, too. And that not only is she gorgeous, but she can act the hell out of a scene, it, multiple scenes, as we've seen here. Um, I thought that, you know, everything from the very subtle, passive aggressive anger that we see in the inter- uh, in her interrogation in 2012 to, you know, when ang- her anger erupts in 2002, I thought was fantastic. And... Yeah, I agree with you. We're probably not going to see as much of her. I hope that she's not gone for sh- for good. But and also, I just don't know where the show is going at all. I never know where where we're going to go from week to week. And that's kind of what I love about that. All right. Well, my final thought, 
I, I as I said before, I don't think we're gonna find out who the killer is. I don't think we're gonna find out what's what's really going on, and I think that that is gonna drive some of our listeners insane. Yeah, I'm wondering if the show does that. It will be consider. I think that will be amazing, but I feel like a lot of people watching the show are gonna like want to throw their TV out the window or something. Like, in which case, Nick Pizzolatto will he will laugh and be like, "All right, that's what I wanted to do." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and he's like, "Too bad, I'm coming back for a second season. Already decided." <laughs> All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode of Detect This. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget you can call us through the website or by calling 336-793-2509. And you can email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about the program so we can keep growing our audience. And you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate all your support. Uh, We also have an affiliates program. If you go to our website, uh, you'll find links to a lot of our partners, including Amazon. And if you use our site to get there, then anything you purchase from Amazon, we will get a small percentage of that. So you can buy something for yourself. Maybe pre-order season one of True Detective on DVD or Blu-ray. You know, if if you feel like uh, re-watching it or owning it down the road, and we will get uh, a part of those proceeds, and that helps us out. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, and The Agents of Shieldcast. Gwen, thanks so much for joining us today. Where can people find more of your work? Thanks, guys. Um, you can always find me on tw- Twitter forward slash Real Vixen, as well as realvixen.com and uh, freshfiction.com. And the Agents of Shieldcast. And the Agents of Shieldcast. I always do that. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back next week. Next, We'll be back next Wednesday. We're very excited. Yes, yes. It's been a while. <laughs> Shield's been going on a lot of breaks, but uh, I'm looking forward to being back with that. Charlie, where can people find you online? You can find work that I have posted for Edge Boston and Movie Mezzanine on edgeboston.com and moviemezzanine.com. You can also listen to the uh, discussions me and Andrew have had on the eighth and final season of Dexter under the Avenging Angels section of filmgeekradio.com, as well as the third season of Homeland under the Briefing Room section of filmgeekradio.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at ctnash91. That's C-T-N-A-S-H 91. You can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and patheos.com. Also, I'm going to be reviewing the second season of Hannibal over at craveonline.com, and I've uh, been writing a couple. I've been filling in for one of their critics and writing a couple reviews of Helix for them, so uh, check out that over at Crave Online. And you can follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener so we can keep talking about True Detective. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Charlie Nash. And I caught zero logic in that. That last part, pure gibberish. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!